Well, as long as I've been preaching, you'd think I would get my mic on before I get up front. But I forgot. But you need to get a paper anyway. Everybody, everybody got a paper? Anybody need a paper? You're going to want one tonight to follow along because we're going to do something for a communion service we've never done before. I, I know that, that many of you like to study the Bible. And so I thought tonight I would take you on a journey through the book of Romans. And in order for us to accomplish it in the time we have, we need to have a paper like this so we can move along kind of quickly. What, what do you think happened when the church at Rome received the book that we call Romans for the very first time? It was a letter. It was a letter sent to them from the Apostle Paul. What do you think they did with it when they received it for the very first time? What do you think? I think they read it out loud in the whole group, don't you? I think they did. When they got done reading it, what did they do? Well, they celebrated communion. You say, you don't know that. The early church celebrated communion at every service. So I do think we know it. This is what the pattern was at that time in history. So they got the book of Romans, they read it together, and then they had a communion service. Well, that, that's basically what we're going to do too, except we're not going to read the whole book. But I'm going to walk you down through it <clears throat> in the hopes that some of you who like to study the Bible might use it later on and read through the book of Romans yourself and just be able to track kind of what the Apostle Paul was trying to do as he wrote this book. Okay, here we go. Romans chapter 1. The theme of Romans chapter 1 is that the Gentiles, the unchurched people, the unchurched, are sinners. That, that's how he starts this book. You know that he, that he starts it with the verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. But in chapter 1, he's trying to help them understand that the unchurched people are sinners. So he says this in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God's made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. He's talking about the unchurched people. Now when he ends this chapter, he describes how they live. Very descriptive for the day and age in which we live. He says, they are full of they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. That's where he starts this book. That the people living outside, not in the church, they're sinners. In chapter 2, 
he says the Jews, that is, religious people, are also sinners. So in chapter 2, verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. He says it's easy to sit inside the church and cast judgment on people outside the church. He said, you have no excuse for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. He says, yes, the people in the outside who do not know God at all, they're sinners. And he says, hey, the Jews, the, the religious people, the people inside the church, they're also sinners. So he says in verse number 9, let me find it here. He says, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law, those people outside the church, will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law, those people inside the church, they're going to be judged by the law. He, he's just saying everybody outside the church and inside the church, Gentile and Jew, they're all sinners. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 is everyone's a sinner and hopelessly lost. If we didn't get it, if you didn't get the message by the time you get to chapter 3, he wants to make sure that everybody gets what he's saying. Verse number 9, Romans 3, 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Us, us in the church, are we any better than the people outside the church? He goes, not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentile alike are all under sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good inside or outside the church. Who's he talking about? Everybody. He's talking about everybody. He says everyone's a sinner and hopelessly lost. In fact, he says it's worse than we ever dreamed it. We're worse off in God's sight than we ever dreamed because i think almost every person in this room would say of unsaved people there's lots of unsaved people who are good people don't we say that well he says there aren't he says in fact there's none that doeth not even none that doeth good not even not even one he says it's far worse than we would ever dream it is we're all sinners, every last one of us, inside the church, outside the church, and hopelessly, hopelessly lost. We can't do anything good to earn God's favor. Chapter 4. God's solution to our sin problem, God's solution to our sin problem is not keeping the law, but a blood sacrifice received by faith as demonstrated by Abraham. When you get to chapter 4, it, it's like it seems a little out of place. But what, but what he's saying is that God has a solution to the sin problem, and it's not in keeping the law. It's a blood sacrifice received by faith as demonstrated by the patriarch Abram. That's what he's doing in chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I hope some of you have your Bible out and you're tracking along with me in chapter 4. Verse 13, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness that he had by faith 
while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be accredited to them. He's talking about Abraham. And, and he got all that apart from the law. That's what he's saying. He, he wasn't under the law when he was accounted righteous. It, it doesn't have anything to do with that. When we get down to verse 22, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words that was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe on him who raised Jesus our Lord from the death. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. He's using Abraham as an illustration of how we get right with God. And he says, you know it has nothing to do with law. Why? Is Abraham before the law or after the law? He's before the law. He's in Genesis chapter 12, and law doesn't come until Ten Commandments are in Exodus chapter 20. He's before the law, and yet he's righteous. Obviously, you don't get righteous by keeping the law. You get righteous by a blood sacrifice. That's by faith in this sacrifice that was going to happen. Romans chapter 5. When you get to Romans chapter 5, he wants to talk about how God's love provided this one-time sacrifice of one righteous man dying for everybody. God's love provided a one-time sacrifice of one righteous man dying for everybody. So you get to Romans chapter 5, and in verse number 6 he says, You see that just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. For very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Now, he makes it really clear when you get to the end of this passage, when you get down to verse 18, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. Who's the one man who sinned? Adam. Just when Adam sinned, Everybody that was going to come from Adam was born a sinner. We didn't get a choice in the matter. Adam sinned, and all of his children, all of them down through all the years, were all born sinners. <clears throat> he says in, in verse 19, Just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ. You say it doesn't matter that Jesus was obedient during his life. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. He has to have obedience in his life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. There has to be obedience. So the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And he's just saying, hey, God loves us. And he loved us enough that Jesus came to be the one person who would stand in our place. When I was in seminary, when I was in seminary, every Friday we had a verse quiz. Every Friday, when I was taking theology classes, every Friday there was a verse quiz, and he would give us five or six verses, and we had to learn them. And then usually he'd just have us write one of them. And then you got your grade based on that one verse. Every once in a while, though, every once in a while, he would say at the start of the class, we had our verse memorization test right off the beginning, he would say, is there a David who would like to slay Goliath? 
Kind of a weird guy. But anyway, he would say, is there a David who wants to slay Goliath today? And we all knew what that meant. Was there any guy in the room who wanted to stand up and he would just give him one verse and if he got it right, everybody in the room got a hundred? Of course, if he didn't, we didn't. I never did that one time. I was in that class semester after semester. I never did that once. How many of you would have never done it? You'd have never, ever done that. No, no way. But there was always some nitwit who would do it. There's always some guy who would stand up. Usually they got it right. Because if they didn't, we all had something to say to them afterwards. Because we all got a bad grade too. This is Jesus Christ. He says, I'll be the guy. I'll stand up. And I'll take it. That's Romans chapter 5. Well, when we get to Romans chapter 6, when we get to Romans chapter 6, he says, now for all those people who get saved, all those people who get saved through faith, they must not continue in sin. They need to change. He, see, he talks about the fact that we're all sinners and we need a Savior who dies in our place, and that's Jesus Christ, and we have to take that gift by faith. I think most of us in, that room, in this room know that. When you get to Romans chapter 6, the game changes. Here's how it starts. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. We who died to sin, how can we live any longer in it? He says, hey, listen. Once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can't go on sinning as if sin doesn't matter because sin sent Jesus Christ to the cross, right? You say, well, when we sin, doesn't that give God more chances to forgive us? No, that's slick, but that doesn't work. Nope, no excuse now. He says every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ needs to change. Their lives need to radically change. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has master over him. He says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. He says, hey, Jesus Christ died and he was taking care of sin. And it's like we have to die to sin too. So he makes it very clear now. We have to change. Now he wants to talk about the change. So we go to Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, he says the change doesn't occur by keeping the rules of the law. You could think that. You, you could think this. You could think, well, we don't, we don't get righteous by keeping the law. Abraham certainly didn't. He lived before the law. We don't, get, we don't become righteous by keeping the law. We get righteous by, by Jesus Christ taking care of our sins and us putting our faith in him. But after we're saved, maybe we get righteous by keeping the law. He goes, nope. That's not how it works. So Romans chapter 7 is here to say the change will not occur by keeping the rules of the law. So in verse, in verse 5 he says, For since we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that it bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. He says, that this, this pleasing God thing, it's not about keeping all the rules of the Old Testament law. It's not about that. 
It's, it's a new relationship where we're trying to live our lives to please God. Yes, we follow what the Bible says, but we follow it because we've been saved, because we've been made righteous. The change doesn't come by just doing the, the rules. It's not how it works. Well, then how does it work? Well, that's Romans 8. The change requires the work of the Holy Spirit. We, we, have, to, we have to have God help us to do this. So we need the Holy Spirit. So he says in chapter 8, 5 to 9, he says, Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It, cannot, it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Here's what happened when we got saved. Happened for every person. One of the neat things about salvation is it's so unifying. It's such a unifying thing. Everybody in this room's the same. I think we're not the same. We're, we're the same. Some of you, you lived in the world. You were an unchurched person, and then you got saved. Some of you, you grew up and you had Christian parents, and you've always been in the church. How many of you just were basically always in the church? Okay, hands down. How, how many of you, you, really, you, were, you weren't in the church when you were a kid? Let me see your hands. Yeah, see? But it doesn't matter because whether you were born in the church or whether you were outside the church, we're all what? We're all sinners. We're all sinners. And we all get in the same way. We, we don't get in. I don't get in because my, my dad's a pastor. I don't get in for that. That doesn't make me any closer to God. Doesn't, why? Because we're all sinners. Well, then we all get saved the same way. We all get saved by putting our faith in the one sacrifice. There's one sacrifice for sins. That's Jesus Christ on the cross. It's the only way in the door. Every person in this room, if you're saved, you got in the same door. Nobody got in a different way. Then, once we're in, he does another thing. He gives us the Holy Spirit. So there are kids in this room. There are kids in this room in, in grade school. Every, ki every kid in grade school, stand up and put your hand up. Stand up and put your hand up. Right now, stand up and put your hand up. Every kid in grade school. Elementary school, I got to say that. First to fifth, okay. Okay, now all you kids, here's what's true about you. If you got saved, if you asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. It's really, it's really a cool thing because the Holy Spirit lives inside Pastor David too. He lives inside Bill Mishler. It's re he lives inside Sam Riggleman. He lives inside... Every kid and every adult. Sit down. He lives, inside, he lives inside us all. It's the unifying factor. You know why he's in there? He's in there to help you be the kind of person that Jesus wants you to be. That's why he's in there. Now, some of us need him more than others. No, I'm just kidding. We, we all need him the same. I was going to say Kim Hainer needs him a lot more, but it's not true. It's not true. We all need him the same, don't we? We all, well, Butch needs him a little more, but, but all the rest of us, we all need him the same. The change comes by the Holy Spirit. That's because Christianity is a supernatural relationship. You can't make it on your own. 
You've got to have Jesus to get it started, and you've got to have the Holy Spirit to make it work every day. If he doesn't help you live for Jesus today and tomorrow, you can't do it. Apart from me, you can do... Apart from me, you can do... Nothing. Nothing. You can't do anything. You won't be able to do one spiritual thing apart from the Holy Spirit. If he doesn't move you to do it and help you to do it, you won't be moved to do it, and you won't do it. Every time you've done something good for God, the Holy Spirit moved you to do it. Not one time did it come from you. It's a pretty cool thing. He's really active in our lives. Romans chapter 9. Salvation is solely God's work designed to bind his children, Jew and Gentile, in one family. Salvation is entirely, solely God's work. It's not us. We didn't do it. God did it. And it's designed to bind all of his children, Jews and Gentiles, the people that grew up in the church and the people who didn't grow up in the church, the white middle class and the minorities, the people in the third world countries. He's binding us all into one family. And and God did it all. So in chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, he says, What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy which he prepared in advance for his glory, even us whom he called not only the Jews but also the Gentiles, everybody. This salvation, it's all God's work. And in eternity past, he picked you. And he picked you, and he picked you, and he picked you. And he picked some people in Haiti, and he picked some people in Japan, and he's going to bind us all into one great family. He picked people that were middle class, and people that were low class, and he picked rich people, and poor people, and white people, and black people. He just picked us all. It's all God's work. Chapter 10. All true faith and change occur from responding to God's word. He wants us to understand that, that God's word is key in this. Consequently, faith comes by hearing the message and the message through the word of Christ. It's all all tied to the word of God. You have to have the word of God if you're going to get saved and if you're going to change. Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, he ends this, this front section The front section of the book is 11 chapters long, and he ends it by saying, if everything that that we've talked about is true, then this is what you would say. God's plan is perfect, he's great, and he deserves all the praise. Isn't that true? If we were sinners and hopelessly lost, and God sent his only son to die in our place, and we get saved by doing nothing but just coming to faith in Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit helps us live lives to please Him. It's all God from start to finish. And in the end, God deserves all the praise and glory. So he ends it this way. Chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? We've never given to God anything. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That's how it ends. Now, that's the whole first section of of Romans. That's what Romans is doing. It's telling us that we're sinners and we needed a Savior. And God in love sent his only Son to be our Savior. And we get saved by putting our faith in him, not by doing righteous things. We're never good enough for God to accept us. It's all God. He picked us. It's all God from start to finish. And every time we come to communion, we say thank you. 
because we didn't do it. Isn't that right? That's why we're here. Okay, but that's not the end of the story. Chapter 12 to, to, to the end of the book is our response to that. I'm, I'm going to just do chapter 12. In fact, I'm only going to do chapter 12, the first couple verses. Okay, but, but it, it gives us basically what's going to happen in the rest of the book. He says in chapter 12, we should all respond to God's mercy and grace. Knowing that God did this, and it was his mercy, we didn't deserve it, it was just grace, it was undeserved. Knowing that's true, we should respond. So he says this, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in light of everything I've said, in light of the fact that God saved you when you were a sinner, whether you were inside the church or outside the church, God did this work in your life, you didn't do anything, it was all God, his son, his sacrifice, his grace, his mercy. In light of that, he says we need to do three things. Here we go. Number one, I urge you then to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Number one there, total submission to Jesus. He says offer your life as a living sacrifice. Every person tonight when we're having communion, you're supposed to be saying to God, here I am again. Here I am again. Here's, here's my life. I know what you did for me, and, and I'm, I'm going to give you everything that I am. It's not enough to sit in communion and say thank you. That's not enough. He says, I urge you to offer, present it to God, Say it to God tonight. God, I just want you to know again, I'm yours. Whatever you want me to do. Then he says this, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That's the second one. He wants us to be radically different from the world. He wants us to choose to be radically distinct from the people around us who don't know Jesus as their Savior. So we need to make a commitment to that, to him. And I talked about this this morning. It's really hard to be different. In my life, in my personal life, I thought it was most hard in middle school. I'm just telling you what I found. I thought it was most hard in middle school and high school. But it's still hard today. But that's what he's asking us to be, different. We talk different. Sometimes we dress different. We act different. We treat our spouses different. Treat our children different. We do different things with our finances than the people who don't know Jesus do. He calls us to be radically distinct, and tonight we say to him, I'm willing to follow you. I'm give you everything, even if it means I have to be different. Then the last one. And be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will it is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We, we have to be open to a continual transformation in our mind through the word. P part of Part of responding to what God's done in our life is to say to God, I'm open to changing if you show me in your word that that's what you want me to do. 
Nobody in this room right here, nobody's arrived yet. We, we, haven't, we haven't arrived at the end. There are people in this room older than me. You haven't made all the changes God wants you to make. Not by a long shot. This transforming process, it continues. It doesn't stop because you turn 65. What we're saying to God, what God wants us to say, what Paul urged these people to say, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of everything that God's done to you, that I talked about you for 11 chapters, in view of that, do these three things. It's interesting that he never says, be thankful. He doesn't say that. He's already done a passage of praise right before it, but he doesn't say, here's the main thing you need to do, be thankful. He doesn't say that. He says this. I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He says that. Here I am, God. I know what you've done for me. I know what it calls for. And I want you to know, here I am. Everything I am and have, it's yours. He wants that. Then, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Because I want you to be different than all those other people that don't, don't know me. Then he says this. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let God change you by changing the way you think through his word. Why do you need to be in the Bible? So that God can change you. Why do we need to be in the Bible? So that God can change us by the word of God, changing the way we think. Change the way you think, change the way you live. This is what Romans is. I think they read this great book. I don't think they got it all. It's huge. So much in there. But I think they got the essence of it. Then he did this. He said, this is the kind of people we'll be. Love must be sincere. Hate what's evil. Cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serve in the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. That's, that's some of the rest of this chapter. He's saying that his family ought to get along. He said, I've done something in all of you. You ought to be able to get along. He challenges us to do it in light of what he's done in our lives. So tonight, communion. We're saying more than thank you. We're doing more than that. We're saying something about who we are and how we respond to him. It's something like, like this song, page 379, once you find it. Page 379.
Let's stand together and we'll sing and I'll ask the deacons to make their way down to the front. service for God's people. It's a service for God's people because only someone who really knows Jesus Christ as their Savior and who's trying to please him as the Lord of their life understands what's happening. We're, we're reminding ourselves again of what God's done for us. We're reminding ourselves of the first 11 chapters of Romans. Everything that God's done for us. It comes it comes as the sacrifice of that one person for us. If you're here and that matters to you, you know Jesus in a personal way, when we, when we share these, I invite you to participate. But if you're here and you don't know Jesus, still searching maybe for truth, then I'd encourage you not to do this part of the service because God says you shouldn't. Except for the deacons, you may be seated. 